the science fair project, in my opinion, can also be seen as an investment in your own future, right? That's what happened to me, effectively. Um, doing the science fair every year really allowed me to internalize, basically, and find my passion for technology, for communication, um, and, and it was a time investment, absolutely. Instead of, of going home and then basically going to play with friends, I would stay home, go in the basement, and basically start, uh, in French we say bricoler, uh, the, the product together, right? And, and that was a time investment. It was an energy investment, but it was one um, that basically paid me multiple folds throughout my career and my life so far. That's Christian Terreau, CWSF alumni, newly appointed Youth Science Canada board member, and now serial entrepreneur, mentor, investor, and deep tech expert. In today's episode of the podcast, as we explore Christian's adventures in STEM, I wanted to focus the conversation on two main topics. The importance of effective science communication, as well as the challenges involved in the commercialization of ideas. I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather be having this conversation with. You're listening to Why to How, a podcast where we explore adventures in STEM. Christian, welcome to the podcast. How are we doing? Very good. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Really appreciate it. Of course. I'm very excited for this conversation. I know it's going to be absolutely wonderful, and I can't wait to hear your gems of advice that you, uh, that you give to all the students listening. That's putting a lot of pressure, so hopefully there'll be something interesting there. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure at all. So uh, let's dive straight on in with a bit of background about who you are and where you've come from. Uh, how did you first get involved in science fairs, I guess? Were you a, were you a curious kid? Um, I'd say I'd be a curious kid, yes, absolutely. So um, I, I was very fortunate. My uh, parents actually pushed me into science very early on, such that I actually uh, did a science fair project uh, every year from uh, grade 1 to grade 12. Um, and that really helped basically do a lot of, of fun discoveries, a fun curiosity. I remember, I think it was uh, one of my early grade projects was finding out what has more um, basically carbonated pressure, is what I would call it now, between Fanta, uh, Pepsi, Coke, and ginger ale. So um, lots of fun little things, lots of fun memories, that's for sure. Do you remember the answer to that question? You know, I want to say it was either Pepsi or Coke, but yeah. don't quote me on that. I wasn't quite sure. I don't remember enough. <laughs> I believe it. Um, so can you share with us then what you remember of your science fair experiences and what you learned from those days of research, curiosity and presentations? Absolutely. I mean, it's um, one of the things that really struck me early on um, was I'm just going to go ahead from my perspective, right? The, the love, the enthusiasm and the energy that I would get for explaining my science fair project, the research I had done. Um, to the audience, to the visitors. Um, I remember the judging, not as fondly, I'll be very candid, uh, <laughs> but definitely the uh, basically school days and the days that the fairs were open to the public, it was always, always lots of fun. And of course, um, you know, I remember very fondly uh, my four trips to uh, CWSF, um, as well as uh, the trip to Australia uh, with the, the Youth Science Forum. So that was all very fun. Oh, great experiences all around. 
especially after 12 years of science fairs, to be able to make Candlewide four times is pretty special. And I mean, I may be biased, but Australia is the best country in the world. So it's amazing you could visit <laughs> as part of that international delegation as well. Uh, that was amazing. That was absolutely an amazing opportunity that, you know, the science fairs afforded me that was, you know, I'll, I'll again, right. I, I do uh, still to this day, basically, um, you know, uh, I'm willing to say that the science fair are a big part of where I am today. Um, basically going to school um, in, at Princeton and then basically just taking up entrepreneurship um, as a career. Mm -hmm. And so how did you go about the learning process then for these projects? How did you find the information you needed to be able to research what's the most carbonated of the soft drinks? Of the pop, that's my Australian accent. <laughs> yeah, no, pop. absolutely. Um, so I guess from my perspective, it was, and very early on, this is the whole idea of hypothesis driven, um, which is, I believe, you know, core to the uh, Smarter Science program that Youth Science Canada mm -hmm. um, basically, um, you know, distributes, is this whole idea that you need to create a framework, first of all, right? You find what is your hypothesis, and you then create a framework, which is a set of experiments that hopefully will give you a clear enough answer so you can either prove or disprove your hypothesis. And, and this really stayed with me um, basically through the science fair days into uh, my research uh, days as an undergrad and as a graduate student um, and just even basically into, into business, which is at the end of the day, you need to create a strong framework and a good understanding of, of what is the answer that you're actually trying to uh, basically collect data around so you can then know whether or not you actually have an accurate answer. And later on, I learned the statistical significance and, and so on and so forth. Um, so there was uh, a lot of learning along the way. Yeah, I think it's also key that you note there that it's not just like you're a businessman, right? Like it's not just if you go into science, you also need to know the scientific method. It, it applies to every area of your life, which is something we, we try to discuss on this podcast a lot. It's that um, science is helpful and a scientific understanding is helpful no matter where your life takes you. That is absolutely correct. Um, you know, as, as a deep tech investor right now, basically whenever we look at, at new companies, step one is to create a framework around how we're going to perform diligence around them so that we can understand what we don't know, what we want to know, and why answering those questions might lead us to an answer um, that is needed. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about being a deep tech investor then from the, from the days of science fairs to now as an, as a deep tech investor, you've been on quite a journey to get to where you are. Could you share a little bit about where your STEM adventures have taken you before ending up on this new wonderful podcast of ours? Sure thing. Sure. So, um, after, uh, spending, uh, uh quite a few years, um, at Princeton as both an undergrad and graduate student, um, I spun out quite a few companies. Um, some of them were in medical uh, devices, other were in more material science aspect. Uh, I joined a startup at some point, which was uh, biotechnology creating uh, new chemical entities uh, to treat various uh, diseases. Uh, and then I was lucky enough uh, to stay in touch with one of uh, my advisors um, during my days at Princeton. And uh, we created a company together called Tag Optics, uh, which through a lot of tears, hard work, we managed to create uh, quite a unique device, um, which we called the tag lens. It was the, it still is the world's fastest focusing lens. It changes focus in hundreds of nanoseconds. And it's, uh, you know, throughout our entire commercialization process and creation process, really creating the technology and the surrounding aspect of the technology needed to bring it to commercialization. 
Um, we really learned uh, the whole idea of product market fit and basically how to take an idea and answer a need that customers might have. And that's actually very important because at the end of the day, um, you know, if you do want to be successful, if you want to make an impact, you need to have a product uh, that answers a market need. And that's really uh, where basically a lot of our work uh, went through. We were very uh, lucky that one of our early customers saw the potential. And so we were acquired uh, by a Japanese multinational called Mitsuyo, uh, which is the world's largest uh, metrology uh, company. So that's for measuring uh, devices, uh, quality assurance. And uh, from there, I worked with them for about three years on the technology incorporation, on technology scouting. Um, and then for the last couple of years, I've now been, a, as you said, a deep tech investor, uh, focus on all things hardware, but also all things data enabled, particularly data enabled hardware, where you can basically have a platform and increase the value of the platform based on the proprietary data that you create around it. So after 12 years of doing science fairs every single year, you decided to go to Princeton and then jump into a professional science fair project. <laughs> that is a very nice way to put it. Um, that professional science fair project was almost uh, basically a 10-year journey itself. Mm -hmm. um, so, and absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I always like to, uh, to uh, uh, akin basically is the actual science fair days to the industrial trade show world which is effectively a glorified science fair where instead of having a small, you know, meter and a half table space, you've got booths that are, you know, three meters by three meters all the way to, you know, 20 meters by 20 meters um, with all sorts of demonstration technology and where effectively you are showcasing your technology to people who are interested in that particular topic. In my case, it was normally photonics, uh, quality assurance, um, you know, areas, uh, in market verticals like those ones, and and effectively hoping to learn from the folks who come by how your technology can better be applied, how it can be deployed for them, and answer their needs. Yeah, it's not much of a stretch to to see how the your experiences at Science Fair and Candlewide Science Fair in particular were basically practice for what effectively oh, became your career. No, absolutely. I'm I'm very adamant to say that yes, that it is it is a very direct line from the science fair project to basically industrial trade shows, where effectively in many cases, you know, sometimes the customers want to understand the nuts and bolts of how the technology works, but sometimes they don't have the time to really get into it. They just want to know is the technology that you are showcasing going to answer their pain points. And how hard will it be for them to deploy that technology and be able to uh, alleviate, provide solution to those pain points and create value? And talking about direct lines, that ties so very nicely into the, uh, the main topic I wanted to discuss in this podcast, that of science communication. But I guess before we jump into that very quickly, I just want to congratulate you on winning an Edison Award for your work with Tag Optics. Um, incredible work. I absolutely loved reading, my, reading about that, that product. Um, and I think also just before we jump into it, it might be a good place firstly to define what you mean by deep tech for those listening who don't know Absolutely. what that is, because I certainly had no clue what that was. 
Fair enough. Um, I, I'm happy to uh, to double click on those. Uh, first, yes, um, National Science Foundation in the United States is a, has a phenomenal program with their Innovation Industry Partnership uh, Division, which uh, is the SBIR program, Small Business Innovation Research Grants, which effectively give grants to startups uh, in the United States to basically build and commercialize new technologies. And those are all in the deep tech space. Um, so deep tech itself, the way I define it first, um, you have biological deep tech, and then you have everything else, which can then also be subdivided into in silico. So you can think about quantum computing, cloud computing, so on and so forth. And then also basically additional hardware like sensors. Um, more generally, you can really think of, of deep tech as, uh, or tough tech as it's sometimes called, as technologies that often require significant amount of effort and capital to bring to market. And more than that, um, those technologies very often become platform and become incredibly important to our daily lives. The thing is, however, is that those technology in itself have different types of multiples from a value perspective um, than basically say a pure software play. And that's where basically the junction between deep tech, hard tech, basically, and data analysis, data creation, uh, basically brought together really can create value at the platform level. Mm, it's, it's almost like I like to think of it as a, a bust or a win, like either you put in all of this investment and you get nothing for it, or you put in all of this investment and you change the lives of the entire world. Yes. However, I'm going to go ahead and do be a little cagey and say one of the things that's really nice about deep tech investing um, is the fact that at the end of the day, even if you don't have perfect product market fit, one of the things that's very interesting is that it's rarely winner takes all in the deep tech space. In the software space, we see that all the time. But in deep tech, the underlying technology, if you made it far enough that you actually had enough customer to create uh, to, to actually have the product commercialized, it still has an underlying value. And that's where patents, intellectual property, trade secret, know-how really come in um, as a, a way to basically also create value for the investors, for the company, for the shareholder, and as you said, hopefully have impact and also have value for the greater uh, population, the greater world um, as a whole. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar analogy to... Uh space exploration right nasa spacex it takes so much money so much time uh, so much labor but at the end it's so worth investing in those Absolutely. technologies and putting time yeah. and effort into the development of them yeah space is actually a very good yeah space is a very good um basically analogy there for example right again at the very beginning we had nasa um and various uh governmental agencies around the world who really were driving um basically just sending things into orbit. Um, then you've got this really interesting phase, basically about, you know, about let's say about 10 years ago with SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, uh, and so on coming all on board, which really started doing what is being described as democratizing space travel. And effectively, this whole idea of democratizing deep tech in itself and finding a platform so that the general science population, the general engineers can then all of a sudden and payload into orbit opens up a brand new market. Another example basically is the CubeSat and the small scale satellites, 
you know, it's a lot cheaper now to actually send the payload if you can hitch a ride along with a lot of other satellites than it was. And then that in itself is creating a new market because all of a sudden, once the satellites are being dropped off, I recently heard a great analogy where they were saying the satellites effectively get dropped off at a bus station point in space, but that's not where they need to go. So then all of a sudden, those CubeSat require a new type of deep tech, which are thrusters that need to survive the lifetime of the satellite and then basically place them at the right location on the Earth's orbit. So these are all this whole idea behind market creation, basically based on deep tech technologies, which 10, 15 years ago, you never have thought would actually even have become an area of interest from an investment perspective and even from a technology perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all very incredible uh, and interesting stuff to learn about. Um, so then let's jump into science communication and then we can jump into some more commercialization of projects. Um, growing up with your science background and now being absorbed within the business world of investing in entrepreneurship, you're in a somewhat unique position of understanding both sides of what hasn't always been the most effective of conversations, I guess I'd say. Um, so I'll throw the most wide open of questions to you and we can drill down into some more specifics later. But why is science communication and effective science communication so important in your opinion? Uh, first, I just want to say how I appreciate the way that you phrased the question, which is not just science communication, but effective science communication. And I guess at the high level, the way I would say it is communicating technology can be exciting, but communicating a vision that involves technology, now that has power. And, and effectively, the idea here is, is that the beauty of deep tech, the beauty of science in itself and of discoveries is that they make people dream, right? That's, that's how science fiction as, as a, a genre basically really got created, if you think about it, right? It enabled to make people dream and science discoveries today effectively can do the exact same thing. But one big difference is that now in our crazy connected world, there is a significant question between signal to noise ratio, right? Everybody is competing for your views, for your ears, everything. And so this is why an efficient, effective vision for the technology that is communicated adequately can definitely help your audience, basically, I'm gonna use the word care about what you're saying and about the underlying technology in itself. In a way that if you only went straight into the science, which I'm a self-proclaimed geek, I love to dig into the science itself, but at the end of the day, it's not enough to get only the folks who actually you know, will fully understand um, basically the, the raw science behind it. It's as important to be able to have everyone that's part of your audience to understand the why, the how, and importantly, the what. What can this technology do for your audience? Product market fit. Yeah, that, that puts me in mind of a TED talk, um, what makes an effective leader, I believe. It's, it's called something along those lines. And, and the presenter talks about all the most effective leaders of our, of our times, so thinking Steve Jobs, for example, 
they all start with why. And it's that vision, like why should someone care about what you're doing is the most important thing that you need someone to understand before you even get to the how and what. If they don't understand your why, they're not going to care about your why or your how or your what. So it's that why piece yeah. that's so important. And it's that why piece, which is something that even at Youth Science Canada, is we've, we've started implementing that on a more direct and specific level, I guess. So with our virtual STEM fair last year, we added a section why. Why is your project so important? What does it matter? I absolutely love that. Yeah, I, and I fully agree because at the end of the day, um, in order to answer the why questions, you need two very key points. First, you need to understand what is it that you have, right? What is the technology? What is the innovation? And then the other one is you need to understand the audience. You need to understand what they might need, what they might want. And the best way to do that is what in the startup world we call customer discovery process, which effectively is literally you meet customers, you meet your audience, and you ask them questions that hopefully will give you you know, tidbits, snippets of the why they might actually care about what that you've created, what the discoveries that you've made, the technologies that you've put together, uh, or even just the, the widget that you've assembled. And it's connecting those two things that really is at the basis of a good, strong vision for not only communicating, but also for you, the innovator, to understand where the technology might go in the future. Where do you go from here? Because frankly speaking, from my perspective, once you've, create, once you've made a discovery, once you've assembled a widget and you've created something, that's only a very small fraction of the work. The significant part of the work that comes later is the commercialization, the actual uh, basically deployment of the said widget, of the said technology, so that it can actually have an impact. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of great ideas and a lot of fantastic products that go absolutely nowhere in life. So it's having the great idea, having the great product means nothing if you can't actually get it to the people who care enough to want to buy the product. Exactly. At the end of the day, um, in a capitalistic society, which most yeah. of the world is, right, you do need to basically create some sort of basically cash transaction, right? That is absolutely correct. You, 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 you hit the nail on the head on that one, so you're absolutely right. And, and that is part of the reason why um, there should always be a lot of thought put into why is the work that you're doing important and what might it actually lead, lead to um, in the not too distant future? And then, um, you know, and I'm not saying that this is for a science fair project necessarily, but, you know, as, you know, potential, and I've met some, some great students through the science fairs um, during my judging days who had great ideas and great widgets, um, which I use the word with all love for the record, um, you mm -hmm. know, great little device that they had put together, which actually the next step truthfully was for them to reach out to customers, potential users, let's put it that way, and see what feedback they would get on what they would change. And you need to be willing to be receptive to that feedback. And that's, that's the other, that would be the third component, basically, willingness to actually make modification in order to achieve product market fit. 
Yeah, I love that. And I mean, even even for a Science Fair project, um, you know, where there is no cash transaction involved, there's lots of great Science Fair projects out there that don't do very well on Judging Day, for example, because if you can't communicate what is so great about your project, then you can't just expect someone to put in the extra work and sort of like use their imagination to figure it out for themselves. So that's why science communication is so important. Um, and, you know, even if you go into university and you start doing PhDs, for example, you may have the, the most brilliant idea, but if you can't communicate why it's a brilliant idea in a, in a grant proposal, for example, you're not going to get the money you need to go ahead with your project. Oh, I love that you brought up grant proposal. That is <laughs> so true, right? Um, it's I will be very candid. It's one of the reasons why uh, basically I decided not to continue and pursue a PhD and just basically leave with my with a master's degree, um, basically. And, and it is absolutely correct, right? Um, academics are in the business of science and technology, but they're also in the business of raising capital for their lab in order to be able to create those raw discoveries, those raw scientific understanding, right? And that is incredibly important to be supported. Absolutely. Um, and that's part of the reason why, as you said, it is all about effective communication of the why should the audience, which in the example we're just taking, right, the, the, the program manager basically decides to allocate capital to project X or project Y, why is this a good fit for their project? And that's what is so important communicated. And bring it back to the science fair, um, basically point. That's it also correct on basically the students when uh, when and I remember you know I was guilty at this for the record, right? I remember I wanted to just basically here's all my technology. I'm really really excited about all the projects I've done. Basically here's the nuts and bolts, and I changed and you could change this. You know I had a blast. However, it took a while for me to truly understand that the judges. And the public, right? Yes, they're going to be impressed by the technological innovation that you're bringing, but you want them to walk away from their time at the exhibit hall still thinking about your project. There is 400, 500 other projects like yours, not like yours, but you know, at the same caliber level as yours in the exhibit hall. That's part of the reason why I've always loved the CWSF, right? The gathering of such a strong, beautiful STEM community from all over uh, Canada. And, and the way, going back to, to my example, right, the way to make sure that the audience, that the, you know, the folks who came to um, basically listen to you explain the project, the way to have them still think about it is to basically hit a chord, right? Get a, a resonance going inside of them being like, you know, wow, this was a very good project and it's given me a lot to think about. And the only way you can do that is by creating a rapport between you and your audience. And at the center of that is the technology that you've developed, is the explanation of your project. I mean, that almost answers my next question, which is uh, presumably as a deep tech investor, you've been on the receiving end of many, many business pitches, which is, you know, a, a perfect analogy for judging day, um, you know, that's basically a pitch about their project to a judge, right? So how then do you connect with the audience? How do you strike this chord with them? What, what makes a particular pitch stick with you and, you know, give you the goosebumps and get you thinking about it after the person's left the office? I, I love that question. It's a very tough one. All right. Just for the record, particularly <laughs> if we 
think about the framework of the science fair. Um, because in, in the business world, you would have had some communication in the past. You'd be able to basically do your own diligence. I look at the person's background, have some intro. And in science fair judging, you cannot do that. It's, it's much faster just directly on basically to the science explanation. And personally, um, I, I do remember actually doing this only grade 11, grade 12. I didn't do it beforehand. Is I actually I invited the judges to ask questions throughout the project, not only at the end. And there's two reasons for that. One is for to basically just actually set up the rapport, set up the idea that this is not a one-way communication and then a two-way communication. It should be a two-way communication from the start. Then the other reason is that the questions that the judge might ask you should give you an idea of their thinking about the topic that you're discussing, about your scientific discovery, about basically the technology that you're developing. And if you listen to those cues, you can then tailor the rest of your presentation to then better fit the interest of that judge, while of course making sure that you check every single boxes along the way. Always important, you don't want to forget to talk about one section just because basically you're going on a tangent. That is not good either. But at the same time, it is a balancing act. And in my experience, the best have been the two-way conversation. Now, I know that basically not all judges want to do it that way, which is perfectly fine. And not all students are going to want to do it that way, which is also perfectly fine. But at the end of the day, um, in a true, you know, whether it be actually, a, you know, a, a dissertation defense, um, a project presentation in college and high school, um, or even basically in the business world, it's rare that you have basically complete one-way conversation for X amount of time, and then you open up to question, unless you are in a very large forum, like basically an actual, like a TED Talk, for example. That's amazing advice. Students, if you missed that, go back one minute, listen to it again. Uh, that's incredible. And it just works so perfectly because it ties to my next, my next question, but I have a bit of a ramble beforehand. But that's it. But I think that's an important piece, I guess, that we, I feel is often missed when we talk about effective science communication, and that is the power of relationships and storytelling. And I guess that two-way conversation ties in quite nicely to the, the relationships component of that. Um, you know, so, so often we focus on trying to make scientists better at almost dumbing down their language for the regular person to understand their research. And of course, while it's incredibly important to use language that is more easily understandable without the lifetime of specific knowledge and the, the context that you've built over you know, the, the previous 12 months or however long you've been working on your project for, there's also this other piece which is becoming more and more apparent and that's the need to establish a relationship between science and the general public. Um, whether that's at a science fair level, between you and the judge, you and the general public, or if you are, you know, the health minister of a province trying to convince people to take a vaccine. Um, we've seen pushback against scientific establishments. So obvious right now in regards to COVID, you know, vaccinations, but also just in the fact that people still believe the moon landing is a hoax and that the earth is flat somehow. So as scientists, it's clear that we've neglected the importance of keeping the public's trust. And that comes from a failure to recognize that purely speaking facts isn't enough. And that's where storytelling comes into play. And I know you have a lot of a lot of things to say about storytelling, so let's get into it. We need to we need to weave a narrative that connects with people to ensure relatable understanding 
and a narrative that connects with their emotions as much as their logic. So that comes back to that piece. Why? Why is your project important? You know, I, I say it again because it's so important. Why is your project so important? Um, so I'm sure you see this all the time at Judging Day, uh, but the best projects are the ones that can effectively explain the importance of the work that they do and why others should care about their outcomes. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Um, uh, first, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, there's a lot to double click on there. Yes. Uh, I will go and and you know couple couple things I'd like to what to highlight. Um, I don't like the idea and and you know a lot of people say basically oh when you're doing in order to do effective science communication you need to dumb down the technology. I think that is the wrong way of thinking about it. And in fact, it actually does not only you a disservice because you're creating effectively um, perpetuating a stereotype, perpetuating basically a bias against your audience. That's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is you need to understand your audience has concerns. Why do they have these concerns? And what can I, as the creator of the technology, um, as the, the innovator, how can I address their concerns and make sure that I address these concerns in a way that they will relate to? Right. Um, I really like your analogy about the COVID vaccine, um, you know, which is really straight to the point. Um, and in the United States, uh, basically, uh, there's one name that if you say COVID vaccine. Everybody knows it's Dr. Anthony Fauci. And um, it's always very interesting, um, basically, to see how he describes the technology um, about the vaccine, but also trying to thread the line between talking pure facts and science and then talking scientific vulgarization. And, um, you know, in some cases, he's incredibly, you know, he's done phenomenal work. In other cases, he's missed the mark. Um, and it's completely understand. First of all, um, you know, if there is a reason why companies have public relations departments and that there is a significant amount of a huge industry around PR, right? Um, it is not easy. That is for sure. It is a career in itself. So that's step one. Um, step two, basically, in order to relate to your audience, you really need to be able to understand them. But when your audience, just again, like the COVID vaccine, is basically such a large diaspora, it's everyone, that in itself provides a challenge as well, right? So that challenge makes things also complicated. Um, so effectively, one of the ways that I like to think about it is, again, don't dumb it down, but don't also provide facts and figures that your audience might not actually want to know. And the reason I, I put it in those cases, again, the why, but also the what, right? They want to know, basically, I'm talking about the COVID vaccine, in many cases, am I going to have an allergic reaction? What are the side effects? Is the vaccine safe? And I've heard that it was developed, the Pfizer and Moderna one that is, in this brand new technology. How do we know that it is safe, right? And science actually has answers to all those questions, but the ordering of the answers and what facts and figure you put in your answers are incredibly important. And now bringing it all back to the Science Fair project, it is the same thing, right? If I am asking a very technical question, 
right? Um, I'll just use uh, an example from one of my undergraduate projects, right, which was, uh, this actually happened to me during my thesis defense, um, which was, how do you know that the nanoparticles are actually going inside the cell? And the answer was very simple. I ran the test and I've done a confocal 3D recreation of the cells, which clearly showed that I had nanoparticles, fluorescent nanoparticle co-localized with various organelles inside the cell, period. Now, that is a very clear to the point scientific answer to then basically say, okay, how about if somebody doesn't know anything about nanoparticles, about organelles or anything like that? Well, it's very simple. What I did is I actually scanned the cell the same way as I would do with an X-ray or more likely like an MRI, which creates a volumetric image of your entire body. Well, I did that for the cell and that enabled me to see that the particles were inside of it. So in one case, I actually described how I achieved it, confocal microscopy, co-localization, organelle dyes, nanoparticle dye, and the other way, I use basically a technology that pretty much most people basically know about, CT scan, MRI, X-ray, to look through the body. And then I said, well, it's the exact same type of thing, except I did it at the cell level, and that enabled me to see that the particles were inside the cell. So it's the idea of effectively, again, this rapport, this relationship, right? This two-way communication, understanding how you can make your audience relate to what you're trying to communicate to them based on their own existing experiences. Yeah, relatable. And it's, it's, it's that piece too of understanding your audience, I guess, going into the, the conversation as well. If you're presenting a science fair project that's very technological, very engineering-based, and a general public member comes in that, you know, they might have a, a son or a daughter that's presenting a climate change project. So that's all they've heard for the last 12 months. How do you explain your engineering technology to someone in a climate change, you know, background? We need to understand where they're coming from, what sort of like basic level of understanding they might have, and then put your project in context with what they might know. So if you have to explain the context, all the better for it. Um, if you need to use art to visualize it in something that is, you know, because some people are visual learners, for example, that's why arts and science communication is so important. Um, it's, it's understanding that it's not just if they can't understand the formulas, for example, or the facts that you spread, uh, you said, there's no way you can communicate with them. It's like, no, how do I present that information in a different way? And yeah, maybe the use of the term dumbing down was, was a poor choice of words for me, but it, it's not dumbing down per se, but it's, it's, uh reappropriating is probably a better mm -hmm. word for it i like that reappropriating absolutely reappropriating repackaging in a way that you can make it relatable um i you know i like your your example also about for example climate share change right a lot of people care about climate change but for different reasons whether mm -hmm. it be because they might have relationship with ag ag tech agriculture uh forestry uh basically sea level changes coastal area general temperature because they like winter right? There's all sorts of reason why people care about the topics that scientists, engineers, and just general technologists are working on. And at the end of the day, it starts with establishing a dialogue and understanding how you can explain what you've been working on in a way that is relatable to them. And that's where I like to think of the, the whole concept of storytelling is so important. Stories already connect with us on an emotional level as well as a logical level um 
And sometimes, you know, the facts aren't going to convince you. If you say enough facts to me, but I don't believe in any of the... the if, you, if you haven't communicated well how you came to those facts, I'm not going to believe them. If I already have a negative opinion of you as a person, I'm not going to believe them. If you tell me a story and convince me through some sort of relationship or relatable experience, um, you connect with me on some common ground, that's going to get me to, that's going to convince me more so than anything else. Absolutely. Ideally, you can actually do all three of them. Communicate yeah. the facts, be relatable, and generate a good story that basically they'll resonate to it, that they'll actually have an emotional connection. That is the ideal. But I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And in a way, bringing it back all the way to one of your earlier questions about basically business pitches, there's a reason why there is such a thing as the elevator pitch competition, mm -hmm. right? Which is a either 60, depending on the format, 60 seconds, two minutes, three minutes, right? And and for the record, it works. It is absolutely true. The best pitchers basically are going to be able to, in a very, very short amount of time, tell you why you should care, tell you what they told you, and tell you again what they're telling you and why you need to care. It's, it's, it's a little repetitive. I know what I just said is. But at the end of the day, that's what it is. You tell it in a way, first, why they should care, which is that can be basically, you know, climate change can be whatever, you know, uh, just the reason why you had it and your customer discovery. What you're telling them, which is your technology, how it answers those questions. And again, why you're telling them, which is the piece about the relationship, about the rapport, about basically creating an emotional reaction to basically the project. Yeah, perfect. So then let's let's take that advice and <clears throat> go a bit more specifically then about the commercialization of ideas. This is, this is your background, this is your specialty. Um, and I wanted to discuss the commercializations with you specifically, as I knew you had the perfect experience and the understanding, again, relatable, uh, of having gone through the Science Fair project to be able to give re relevant and relatable advice to students who might be thinking longer term about some of their project ideas and where to take it. So especially within deep tech, which is relatable to quite a lot of the science fair projects that I see each year, what are some of the challenges that you see going from concept, science fair project, which I've only worked on for a year, maybe two years, to then becoming a full-on commercial business, having gone through the investment route all the way to being a successful, yeah, to being a success, I guess. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's a tough question. Summarize your entire career in 30 right seconds. There, right? <laughs> um, the reason it's a tough question is because not only it, it's hard enough for professional entrepreneurs, and I'm using the word quote, in quotation, professional entrepreneurs, to be able to actually spin out multiple technologies and each of them being success, let alone basically spinning out a science fair project. It's all very difficult. Um, so at, at CWSF, one of the projects that I had brought up was the black ice detector. All right. And um, I actually had the thought about, okay, maybe, you know, hey, I've got this great little widget, the black ice detector. It uses various type of uh, reflection technology with a locking amplifier and IR LEDs and all that stuff. And it was lovely and fantastic. But then when came the idea, okay. All right, and this was back in the uh, very, very early 2000s, right, late 1990s. Um, so effectively, you're stuck. It's like, okay, I've got my project, now what? Fortunately, these days, one of the things that's really nice is there's a lot more resources. So that's step one, resources, right? 
Resources, I don't mean cash. I mean, basically mentors. I mean, accelerator programs. I mean, truthfully, educational programs that teach young entrepreneurs, young innovators about what are the steps to commercialize a technology. And commercialize the technology is actually down the line. Step one is the technology translation. Often, the way I would describe a science fair project, it's bench work. So effectively, they have something that's been done on the bench. And sometimes, you know, for, for some more advanced projects, basically, you would have had a couple users try it, right? If it is, you know, a, an innovation, a creation, right? Um, but most of the time, it's just bench work. And then from there, there's the entire path of translating the innovation into a product. And that is not even commercialization yet. That is just productization. And that is entirely based on basically the product market fit. For us at Tag Optics, I can comfortably say it took three years to go from a technology that was being operated by postdocs and doctoral students down to a technology where we had the driving electronics to basically operate it, the software that needed to be operated, the user instruction, all of that, the supporting technologies. It took at least three to four years. Um, and even there, we would refine the product throughout the years. It's the reason why you have multiple generation, multiple iteration. You always try to make your product better for your customer. So that's, that's in itself basically can be you know, a discussion, a class basically in university, right? So you know, it's, it's, it's in five minutes, technology translation. The next part is the technology commercialization which that one is much more about what we were saying earlier, which is basically customer discovery, product market fit, understanding the audience and the needs. And that is basically in itself an additional, uh, basically, I'm not gonna use the word barrier to, to market, but it's an additional hurdle that does need to be overcome. And often the best way of doing that is by having the right team members. So, to recap that a little bit um, and repackage that, my advice number one is to for you know a science fair student who basically has a cool innovation and they want to know, hey, do I have a commercial product here that is budding? Step one, they should educate themselves, right? Find out more about the actual product translation process. You know, is there going to be a barrier due to a supply chain dynamic? Is there a problem due to basically uh, the user interface, the user adoption? Is there a problem uh, basically due to a much more esoteric component, which is a supply, uh, basically an actual component or a technology, a supporting technology that they had access to that their customers won't have access to? Those are all questions that need to be double clicked on and answered. Then the next thing I would suggest is create relationships, find partners. And the partners can be mentors, they can be co-founders, they can be just individuals that they're going to go to to get answers along the way to get to their questions. And that's incredibly important in itself. And then basically you start the ball rolling. And um, I'm just going to say uh, there's a lot of glorification of entrepreneurship around there. And yes, entrepreneurship is fun. It's exciting. It is also a roller coaster. And it is absolutely scary when you're on the receiving end of a customer phone call being saying like, hey, I tried this, I plugged it in and it's not working. So it is, it is all of the above um, and uh, it's not for everyone. 
Um, but for those who do decide to do it, they need to have a very strong stomach and they need to understand that customers and feedback is their friend. They don't need to act on all the feedback that they get, but they need to un internalize it and then basically make their own decision based on the data that they have in front of them and turn that data into information. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that the, the entrepreneurship process is basically just the scientific method. Hypothesis, your current iteration of, of a product. Hypothesis, test, results. From the results, redo your hypothesis, test, results. And entrepreneurship is just doing that very quickly over and over and over and over and over again. So the feedback Absolutely. loop is very quick. It, well, it, it can be uh, depending be. <laughs> on the, it, it should be. That is That yeah. is the right way of putting it. I totally agree. It should be quick. And there's this old outage. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Um, and it's something I agree with, for the record. Um, and the reason for that is because um, the resources available to the entrepreneur, there's one of them that you can never get more of, and that's time. You can always basically create new technologies. You can buy new more equipment. You can find more money. And you can hopefully find customers. But time is not one of those that you can get more of. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so despite all of these challenges, as you say, this is still the area you've decided to expend your energy on. What, what drew you to deep tech over other, you know, seemingly easier investment options as well? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I guess, I'm going to have to answer, actually, it's, it's my root of passion for science technology, for STEM, basically, that actually really came from science fair. I will absolutely attribute that to my science fair days. Um, again, it's, it's the idea of, of actually having an impact um, in a space. Um, and again, right, so today, right now, what I can you know, what I would be able to say is, listen, um, software uh, VCs, software investors, if they hit the right one, they're going to make an amazing return on their investment, right? You can, you can talk about sometimes 100x, right, on their investment. Deep tech, it's rare and hard to get that. And the reason why I chose deep tech was because as much as I like and I'm a big user of software, I also personally believe that without the deep tech aspect, none of the software around us would work. Right. right now, one of the big areas, basically, um, you know, that's really uh, going between software and hardware is quantum computers. Right. There's this whole idea that quantum computers are absolutely an amazing new market that's being created. But the computer itself, the hardware itself is incredibly ephemeral. Right. It lasts for milliseconds, for seconds right now um, due to the quantum nature of it. Right. Then you have the software side of it, which basically creates these amazing routines. And it's only by merging the two of them that you can actually create something. And that's part of the reason why on my side, I decided I chose to really work on the uh, deep tech side of things, on the creation side of things, because it cannot be neglected. It is so important for basically mankind to continue moving forward. We can't just create more and more apps. We also need to create better hardware. Um, and that goes not, and when I say hardware, I'm not only talking about the actual silicone chip, the gallium arsenide chips, or you know whatever basically is using. I'm also talking about just the technologies, 
whether it be basically from the water filtration perspective to basically um, a new type of electricity generator. All of it together, the hardware component is incredibly important, uh, it, it is necessary. Um, and it's my love for that, which I will go ahead and attribute to this, my science fair days, um, that I really basically, you know, made me drive towards, okay, I wanna see a product, right? I actually wanna see something basically that I can say this, this is going to be enabling, it's gonna be a stepping stone for all these other application, which in itself creates value. I love that. And to summarize, basically passion and you truly and inherently believe in the why of the work that you're investing in. Um, that's a, you could perfectly substitute that for why should someone do science fair projects? And it's so clear when you're at a science fair, for example, whether on a regional level, a local level, or a counter-wide level, you can definitely tell from the outset who has been forced into do this because it's a requirement for their school and who truly has a passion for it. And it's, it's almost always that the kids with the passion for the science fair project that they've chosen to do, they're by far the most successful projects. They by far receive the most attention, the, the better awards, judges love them. And it's because they know how to relate to it. They truly understand their project. Um, you know, as Dominic in episode number four said, they've chosen a subject that they're passionate about, so they care about it and they can tell a good story. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, at the same time, I also want to say one of the things that I hope that, though, that the students who do it as a requirement for their schoolwork, that they're going to come out of it understanding the passion, the joy that they may be able to have later on, or at least understanding the other individuals who have that passion. And because again, at, in, at the end of the day, in this crazy interconnected world, it's about relating to everybody. And they also need to understand why some people are passionate about these projects, even though they may not be. The same way as somebody who's passionate about the, the project, need to understand why somebody else's passion may lie somewhere else. So it's, it's mm -hmm. absolutely a balancing act and I totally agree. And I personally would say, yes, I think every student in Canada should be involved in some way in a science fair project simply because it'll give them an understanding about one piece of technology, how science work. And as we've been saying, basically the idea of communicating something, right? Um, and a good way of putting it, right, is, is in undergrad and master's and PhD, you create a dissertation. Right, that dissertation basically makes you an expert in that very small silo, but you're the expert in it. And your job is to explain to the world why they should care about what you've discovered and what you've discovered. Right. And it's the, the same way basically a science fair project is just instead of being a hundred page, is a few page, but very similar type of project still. I'm gonna call up Justin. Tell him Christian thinks every student in Canada needs to be doing science fair projects. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, alrighty, quick fire round. Uh, I've got a couple of very loaded questions for you that I want you to answer uh, in a short amount of time. Uh, wonderful we'll try. Final, final round for you. Uh, number one, why is STEM important? All right, that's a very good question. <laughs> it's a tough one. Um, I guess the way I would say it is there's multiple sciences out there. Some of them help us study the past, which help us understand today, the present. But what STEM does is it allows us to build the future. That's why STEM is important. It is a building block towards a better future based 
on not only the promise of new technologies, but the actual action and the delivery of these new technologies into products. Yeah, that's a mic drop moment there. <laughs> Great answer. Uh, okay, number two. What is the importance of mentorship in your life and why should every one of our listeners find themselves a mentor? Uh, that's very important. At the end of the day, uh, the first thing that you need to understand, I believe Socrates uh, is attributed to this quote, right? You need to know what you don't know. And the best way to do that is to basically uh, surround yourself by mentors, by other people who are smarter than you and who basically will teach you the things that you don't know so that you can get better and better. And, and this is another one I'll say, uh, you never only have one mentor, right? Uh, mentors can come from everywhere and you can have as many as you can. A good, you know, well-rounded human being will have relationship and connections with many, many others. And again, it's, it's, you try to make it a two-way connection as much as possible, wherein you become a sponge and understand as much as you can. Yeah, I love that. That was actually something we mentioned on an episode two with Stella. And it's, you don't have to become, you, you don't choose to use one mentor or one inspiration and, and become that person. The idea is that you have a lot of inspiration, a lot of idols, a lot of mentors, and you cherry pick the best parts of each of them to become your own person that is ideally better because of it. Absolutely. So number three, how do you stay ahead in business and in life? Oh, my Lord. Um, I'm going to go with, I think, what was a refrain in our, in our conversation, which is communication, right? Mm -hmm. um, direct communication is incredibly important. Um, personally, I don't like playing games in business. Um, I want to understand it how it is, have people tell me how it is, and be able to uh, agree and let me tell them the way I see things. Um, so basically, communication is at the heart of all of that, in my opinion. Just so happy you didn't come up with one of those standard responses you see in the news all the time where it's like, wake up at 4 a.m. and run a marathon before <laughs> breakfast. You know? Oh, yeah, every billionaire's secret. To for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not one of those persons. I would like to, but no. Uh, all righty, number four for me. When you look back on your life, how will you know that you've lived a life worth living? All right. Um, that's a very tough one. I'm not quite sure if this is a good answer, but. Um, I currently have a small baby at home and I'm hoping that basically giving her the chance to find her own passion, but at the same time, guiding her through um, basically discovering her passion, I think is going to be uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm looking forward to. Um, you know, I, it doesn't really answer your question per se, but it's, it's the best I can come up with right now. I think that's a great answer. Yeah. And I mean, even for people that don't have a baby daughter at home, helping other people find their passion and guiding them along the path to finding that passion and giving them support where you can. I mean, what more could you, what more could you possibly ask from, from a friend or a mentor or anyone else important in your life? Yeah. Um, so then last question, any other final advice you have for anyone listening here? Wow. Final advice. Um, I guess final advice for, for finalists is basically, you know, don't worry. You're going to be fine. Come judging time. You know your project inside out and try to make it a conversation. Yeah, perfect. Just going to snip that one into a perfect little quote for everyone. <laughs> uh, I just <laughs> have yeah, one final, final analogy, I guess, for everyone based on this conversation, which has been truly incredible as I knew it would be. But deep tech is very much like a science dev project, regardless of whether or not it's a commercial success. And I say that with quotation marks. 
it's still worth the investment. Like what you learn along the path is more important. Most, of, I mean, it is more important than whatever yeah. the final outcome is. And especially on judging day, remember that. Absolutely. Actually, I, I'd love to add on uh, to that, if you allow me, um, you know, because you actually use the, the word investment. The science fair project, in my opinion, can also be seen as an investment in your own future, right? That's what happened to me, effectively. Um, doing the science fair every year really allowed me to internalize, basically, and find my passion for technology, for communication. Um, and, and it was a time investment, absolutely. Instead of, of going home and then basically going to play with friends, I would stay home, go in the basement, and basically start, uh, in French we say bricoler, uh, the, the product together, right? And, and that was a time investment. It was an energy investment, but it was one um, that basically paid me multiple folds throughout my career and my life so far. And I couldn't think of a better note to end on. Christian, this has been absolutely incredible. Um, what a wonderful conversation. That was just chock block full of advice for everyone listening. So um, on behalf of everyone, thank you so very much. I'll give you a, a standing ovation. Thank you, Stuart. For you. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Of course. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on the latest episode of Why to How, a podcast where we explore adventures in STEM. If you like this episode, if you have thoughts on the new format, leave us a comment on our social media. It's just ysc.sjc on Facebook and Instagram, ysc underscore sjc on Twitter. We're going to have another amazing guest for you on the next episode, so stay tuned for more. But until then, have a wonderful day and stay curious.